But one of the things too is realizing, again, as you get a little older, what's the thing you really want to be working on? And seeing if you can get yourself to that. I have heard of YouTubers that also become game designers, but longtime game designers who suddenly find themselves running a studio for a YouTube channel? That is interesting. How did that happen? Well, that's exactly the story of Geoff from Extra Credits. I am Alex, and this is Genesis. You're gonna have an interesting answer to this question, I believe. You have worn a lot of hats in your time, but at this point in your life, when people ask what you do for a living, especially strangers, like, what's your go-to answer? Man, um, that one's always been a hard one for me. I actually say two things at this point. I say that I'm both a video game designer, because I still actively help run a video game studio, and that I help run an animation studio that distributes via YouTube. So I guess at this point, I'd say I'm really good at running small creative teams that have to put out fun things on deadline. <laughs> That's the skill set. That's where the skill set is. So where were you born? I was born in California, Southern California, in San Diego, and I've lived here most but not all of my life. Spent a couple of years up in Seattle for work on video games at one point and went back east to college in Connecticut for a couple of years. Other than that, I like living in a place that doesn't have weather. <laughs> Fair enough. So how early in your childhood did video games become a thing? Mm, let's see. So I think the very first video game I saw, this is going to date me a little bit, is in my late 40s, was I saw Pong. There was a local air and space museum in San Diego, which has a tech or science center. And they brought in this new thing, which was a video game. And my dad had taken me there, and I was very young. And we sat down, it was one of the table ones, and played Pong against each other. But... That was like the first one I saw, and I've loved them ever since. I remember Pac-Man. I remember the original Street Fighter, Street Fighter II. Man, I was just playing video games on my Apple IIe. I learned to program a little bit so I could do some. And I also played a lot of tabletop, Dungeons and & Dragons and Car Wars and Battletech and Cyberpunk and Shadowrun. Just, I loved games. And it really didn't surprise my parents at all when at some point later I started making games for a living as opposed to making them for a hobby. That brings a lot of interesting questions. So you mentioned the Apple II. Mm -hmm. Was your first computer, is that where you started learning any sort of developing? It was. My dad brought home one pretty early. And we went from that to my mom's a writer. And at a later point, we got a, one of the early Macintoshes so that she could write on and stop using a typewriter. <laughs> so I was lucky enough to grow up with um, computers early in my house. I was never one of the people who like took the computer apart and put it back together. I was always a little more software and interested in playing with what you could do on it as opposed to playing with it. Interesting. Any particular games from the Apple II days that you remember? Let's see. Swashbuckler, Karataka, Summer Olympics. Those are the ones that come immediately to mind. I mean, there weren't a lot of great games on that, or at least ones that I knew about or had access to. I definitely did a lot of piracy when I was a kid because I didn't know any better. <laughs> you know, once I started making things and realized that other people made things, 
I really kind of changed my mindset on that. Yeah, it, it was pretty much anything I could get my hands on. Oh, Auto Duel. There was a Auto Duel was a Car Wars variant that was fantastic. That's amazing. I have heard a lot of stories of people who got their sort of entire programming career started on the Apple II. But curiously enough, I don't think I had spoken to someone that had told me that before. Since a lot of the people that I talk are on the Europe side of the world, I hear a lot of people talk about the ZX Spectrum or the BBC Micro or those sort of Mm. generation of European computers. But the Apple II, like I know historically as a fact just how popular it was, Mm -hmm. but... I don't know. I, I just find it fascinating that that entire era of PC technology is freaking fantastic. Well, especially like where I grew up in Southern California, I mean, all of our school labs were filled with Apple II. You know, for the places that could actually get computers, it was all Apple IIs at the time. So like I remember playing, you know, with those in elementary school. Yeah. And it was interesting. For D&D, I could make a random monster NPC generator. Like put something together so I could roll up random stats and print them out and bring them to like early games I was playing. Isn't it amazing just how many generations of people have learned to do things because of D&D? Like even back, you you are not the first person I have heard who says something like, oh, I learned to program to do this or that on D&D. And nowadays I met people who are like, oh, I learned to do decent Microsoft Excel spreadsheets because of D&D. And it's like, wow, generations of people being thought useful life skills because of it. Oh, absolutely. I still use spreadsheets for my D&D stuff. (laughs) I mean, you have to optimize your spell selection when you're choosing a caster. You know, there's different things to consider. You know, these are, as I said, these are important decisions, man. (laughs) The technology has improved and the game has gone with it. So when it comes to, to starting, mm-hmm. did your passion for computers or video games have any role about what you, you chose to do academically? Um, not really. And part of it was, I didn't think I even really realized till after college that people actually made a living making games. <laughs> yeah, it was a different time. In concept and theoretically, you know, for me, games were always a hobby. They were a thing I did. You know, I played modem games and BBS games in junior high and high school. I learned to program MUDs in college. I started playing with level design, modding, um, actually old marathon levels, which was Bungie's precursor to the Halo game. And this was kind of how I picked up my skill set. But I went to school. I have a psychology degree, actually, which is I was interested in how people think. That was going to be my next question, like what you went to college for. Ah, So psychology, that's useful in a lot of places. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was kind of my thought. I actually didn't really know what I wanted to get to me. I went to a very strong liberal arts school and had kind of a minor in what would they called guided studies, which was kind of like an accelerated program, or they used to call them gifted programs because I was way too smart of a young kid for my own good. Basically, it said, we're going to teach you, we're going to crash course you through Western European civilization, <laughs> cross-disciplinary English heart, you know, English literature, philosophy, mathematics, you know, kind of all of these But that was my minor. And for my major, I was like, hmm, what's going to be useful generally? And I was like, people. How do people think? How do they work? So psychology. But then on the side, I was still doing all this like game creation and programming. And I ran the science fiction and fantasy guild at my college. So I was very involved in all of that kind of stuff. You know, that and playing D&D in my garage and everything before was what prepped me to actually be a video game designer later in my life. Actually, not that much later. 
Okay, so actually, like, heading into that, mm-hmm. back in the time, there wasn't a video game industry as we think of it today. And no game schools. Yeah, and there was no obvious career path that will take you there. So how in the world did you find a, a job? Right out of college, I went back to San Diego, where I grew up, and I wanted uh, good internet access. So I'd found a local internet provider, because back then it was still a thing you really hunted for to find a good one. So it wasn't just AOL. (laughs) I found one and I actually looked and they were actually looking for somebody to do tech for them. And I'd already been doing that kind of stuff. So I ended up working right out of college for a startup internet service provider and did that for about a year and was still building games on the side. And at some point, a little bit after that, I saw a Usenet news ad posting, which was Kind of like a much earlier version of maybe Reddit or something. <laughs> That's a good analogy. Yeah, but the post just said, looking for people who can program LPC C++, which was a MUD programming language, the language I'd been programming MUDs, which were kind of like text-based MMOs, could hold like, oh, 40 people at a time. But could program that and could design 3D levels. And as I said, I've been modding marathon levels. And so I wrote back and I said, I think I'm exactly who you're looking for. And they actually were a PC-only shop. So I brought my Mac in. I was a Mac boy at the time. And it was Brad McQuaid, who was the producer for EverQuest. And he was putting a team together. And they played a couple of my levels and chatted about how I'd wrote some code. And, you know, that I wasn't necessarily a professional designer, but I'd been designing things for over a decade, like programming for years in that and looking for people who can design 3D levels. And I'd been modding, you know, Bungie's early game marathon. And I wrote back and said, I think I'm exactly who you're looking for. And the person who posted it was Brad McQuaid, who was the producer for EverQuest and was putting a team together. And they brought me in and I brought my Mac in because they were a PC only shop. And they played my levels, looked at some of my code. We chatted about game design and I was hired, I think, exactly one week later. And came in initially as a level designer on EverQuest as probably like person seven, eight, nine on the team. I don't know exactly. And did that for a little while before transitioning from level design to the game design, more of the system side. And um, because they were actually were more in need of people who knew about that. And again, I'd played so much D&D and I'd been already designing these things and designing mud areas and levels and classes and adventures. And so I was an integral part of the design team for EverQuest. And I did the magic system and some of the monsters and economy and population and treasure and set up. Just there were a couple of us that set up kind of the whole guts of the game. The one I'm best known for for that is designing the EverQuest magic system, which I think we released with 750-ish unique spells put across, I think, 11 caster classes out of the 14 classes. And uh, that was a ton of fun. How did it feel at the time working on something that, I guess that's a two-part question. The first is, uh, how did it feel at the time knowing that this wasn't a thing <laughs> as as widely understood as it is today? And second, did your family at the time saw it? Because this sounds like running away to, to run with the circus or something. It definitely was a little, I mean, my parents were very much on the Oh, cool. He has a job. It didn't hurt that um, the company that hired us initially was Sony before they canceled everything and we spun out independently. 
But it's like, oh, he has a job doing something, making games for Sony. Okay, we've heard of, you know, the word Sony definitely helped Mm -hmm. on that. But they still didn't quite understand what I was doing because very few people did. We were in building a thing that hadn't really been built before. And so we were making it all up as we went along. And this actually became kind of part of my career trajectory, I realized much later, was I ended up jumping into a lot of things that weren't really established yet and just figuring it out as we went along. And I'm very comfortable doing that. I know there's people who are, and I know there's people who would just would drive them crazy. But there's something about my mind where I'm okay taking kind of that level of risk on, hey, we're going to go try a new thing out. And if it doesn't work, but we're going to keep trying until it does. And, you know, nobody else has done it. Okay, we'll just figure it out. Because at the time, nobody had made, you know, a cup, Ultima Online came out a year before we did, and that was isometric. So kind of two and a half D, top-down view. But designing a 3D MMO, you know, a massively multiplayer game, when a lot of people still only had modems, when broadband really wasn't much of a thing. Well, I mean, actually wasn't really a thing at all. When graphics cards didn't exist in most computers. I mean, we made a choice for EverQuest that it was going to require a graphics card. And that was one of the riskiest decisions we made because if the graphic card market hadn't taken off, nobody would have been able to play our game. And so there were just certain things along the way. It was a ton of fun, but we spent years developing that thinking we were going to get canceled every month. It was a Sony side project that John Smedley, actually the guy running kind of the team, Brad was the producer. Smedley was kind of the head of that division. Had It was a passion project that he talked Sony into giving them money to do this, and they were kind of sneaking it in on the side. And at a certain point, as we were working on it, Sony basically canceled everything that wasn't a console game. Sony used to put out PC games, but Sony said, we are concentrating on the PlayStation. And this was in the PlayStation 1 coming up PlayStation 2 era. It's like, we're canceling everything that isn't you know, a console game. And Brad McQuaid and John Smedley managed to spin out our project and get funding. And that's when we became Verant, which is what we published EverQuest under. But I mean, the game literally got, well, it wasn't the game. It was Sony just saying, we're not doing this kind of thing anymore. And that was the kind of, that was just kind of par for the course. It was things like that were just happening. And it was like, hey, we're in it. We're going to figure out how to make it happen. Right. Yet you were telling about Sony once publishing PC games, which ironic mm-hmm. since they kind of falling into that again. And I remembered like somewhere in my mind that I owned a copy of Metal Gear Solid for PC. So it's like, yeah, they absolutely, there was a thing about this. But that stopped in the late 90s. Yeah, yeah, that was 1988 when they published that game. Yep, wow. <laughs> because EverQuest <laughs> came out in 99. I actually remember at one point chatting with... Who was it? It was somebody, I think it was somebody on the Madden team. They were looking at the engine we were using for EverQuest, trying to figure out if they could use it for the Madden games. And like having a somewhat technical discussion about if they could or couldn't use that. Like, would it work for what they wanted to do? Because PC-based. And it was just, you know, things like that happened. So a very early story of going indie after the publisher betrays you. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even a betrayal. If they'd done just us, I'd feel worse about it. But it was just they made a decision that they were shifting what they were making. They wanted to focus on the PlayStation. I mean, and you know, from a business standpoint, years later, 
I think that was absolutely the right thing for them to do. I mean, if we're talking 1999, the PlayStation 1 at that time was a massive success. Like that yeah. was the point where everyone owned one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's just, we were doing this in a really interesting time. So that also kind of tells you what the tech level of the time was. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't until the PlayStation 3 that any of the consoles really had built-in internet capability. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And here we were designing an MMO which required internet connectivity. And we were going to plan to patch it all the time, which meant you had to have pretty damn good internet connectivity and a hard drive of decent size because, um, well, you know, patching. Games as a service before it was cool. Oh, yeah. I've been literally doing games as a service my entire career of making games. That's amazing. I do a little consulting and people are like, can you tell us about this new games as a service thing? And I'm like, well, it's a little older than you think. <laughs> it has come to dominate the industry, but it ain't new. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, it's certain things. Like free-to-play has been around a lot longer than people think too. It's oh, God, just, yeah. you know, all of these different things. One of the great things about the game industry is that we just kind of, you know, it's like, oh, here's a new thing. Cool, let's fold it in and keep doing it. You know, when it came out with consoles, it's not like they stopped making PC games. When they came out with browser games, it's not like they stopped PC or console games. When they came out with mobile, it's not like they stopped PC, browser, or console. And it's just, you know, we kind of keep expanding into different verticals and pieces of hardware and areas that we can put games and distribute them. So after the release of EverQuest, mm-hmm. what happened? What changed at the studio? Well, EverQuest blew up. Like, it was an unexpected hit. I was lucky in that I'm a game developer. Not all game developers are good at what's called being forward-facing mm-hmm. or going and doing press interviews or, you know, presenting themselves well for their company, you know, kind of being somebody you could put in front of a group. And I've always been pretty decent at that. So as a, you know, it's not like I was the lead designer on EverQuest at all. That was Bill Troust. But I was good at giving interviews. I was good at trade shows. I'd made some of the popular systems. I was very well connected with our audience. And so I ended up doing a lot of stuff around that and helping out the team doing that. So I was more forward facing. But yeah, the game, you know, once the game was out, we still had lots of work to do. We kept making, we started working on our first expansion, Runes of Kunark. We just, you know, we were kind of going. The team size went from like 23 people into once we got the GMs and then the customer support and everything else. So I think we ballooned up to over 100 people. We had to move buildings. We ended up like getting a building on a cul-de-sac with two other buildings there and eventually took over the entire cul-de-sac of buildings. We got the Star Wars license. Kevin had put out Tanneris. We started doing more MMOs. We started planning EverQuest 2 because before this, one of the things to remember, you just made a sequel. There were no games as a service. So we were like, oh, of course you go make a number two because number people will stop playing number one and yeah. people are still playing EverQuest. Like if we'd known how things were going to go, we wouldn't have made an EverQuest 2. So right now, you know, they're still running EverQuest 1 and 2. And at a certain point working there, John Smedley, who is the studio head, I used to play Age of Empires against him and Brad McQuaid, and I used to kick their butts at it. And we were working on a strategy game. He's like, hey, you want to come over and be the lead designer on this? And I was like, sure. Um, (laughs) I think I got some of the fastest promotion track. I mean, this was a couple years in. Worked on one called Sovereign for a while. 
Yeah, I've spent six or six or seven years, I think, at Sony working on MMOs, and then uh, actually got headhunted by a company called Monolith Productions up in Seattle, which were the people who later put out Fear and Condemn. Right, I knew that that name sounded familiar. Yeah, yeah, they did. No one lives forever. They do the really good Nemesis System, Orcs and Mordor, uh-huh. Lord of the Rings game. At the time, they were doing the Matrix Online, and they had the license to do a DC Comics MMO, and they didn't have anybody to do it. And so I got headhunted to go put together a team for DC Comics and to basically do a little helping out on the Matrix Online. Were you a fan of DC Comics at that point? Because that sounds like a nerd dream. Oh, yeah. It's funny. I'd grown up more as a Marvel X-Men person, and I'd been reading the Vertigo line, like Sandman and John Constantine, Hellblazer and Preacher kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, as part of that job, I read everything DC Comics put out or had put out for the previous decade. That was part of my homework. And, well, that was, you know, I moved up to Seattle for that. I got to meet the Wachowskis, which was really cool. Got to work on some Matrix stuff. Got to go out to New York for DC a lot and got to meet Jim Lee. It was a ton of fun. We did some really good work. But then on a weird twist of fate, when the Matrix didn't do as well, the sister team of ours, Warner Brothers owns both the Matrix property and the DC Comics one. Warner Brothers decided they didn't, MMOs were too risky. They didn't want to do development. And so ended up, even though our game was nowhere near released yet, it was just deemed too risky. And it was actually that property was transferred over to my old friends at Sony Online. Verant had at that point been acquired by Sony again. I was actually still there at the time. And so I did a whole bunch of prep work that then went back to all my old buddies over at Sony Online, who I'd been working with before getting headhanded to go up to Monolith Productions. It's a small world. Oh, it is. I mean, there's very few studios that could put together an MMO. And you know, the whole yeah. reason I'd been headhunted was to come put together a team that could do one. But this is one of the interesting things about the game industry is for most people, about half the games they work on get canceled. And often for nothing to do with that, <laughs> like a sister team having a game that didn't do as well as it needed to was the reason for our game getting canceled. There is nothing mm-hmm. we can do about that, but it was still a fantastic experience. Yeah. So that was my foray into superhero stuff. And that was kind of my decade of game design. And I moved back to San Diego after that. And actually, strangely enough, I used to throw a lot of potlucks at my house and I ran one for years called Bacon Fest, which is everybody had to show up with a bacon dish. And we just sit there and watch awful bad B-movies eat bacon dishes. Oh, here's a good one for you. So our first two of three movies were uh, Big Trouble, Little China, and Army of Darkness. We were doing a three-movie set. Nice. Can you think of another movie that you would pair with that? Uh, I cannot. This was a topic of debate for a while because those both are kind of self-referential and funny, but they're also like good action movies. And the third one we paired with that was actually the uh, Flash Gordon, the 70s version, the one the Queen did the soundtrack for. Wow. And it was at one of those that one of my friends who actually used to run an EverQuest website covering all the news for that before getting hired by Sony was talking about how many games that he'd seen come into Sony and get started and then canceled in a one-year period. He's like, man, there's got to be a better way of doing diligence for this. He pitched me away. I'm like, oh, that would never work. But I think if you did it this way, it might. And he looked at me, he's like, hey, you want to go start a company doing you know, market research on video games? And so we did. <laughs> my first 10 years was entirely game design. My next 10 years was 
hey, let's figure out what makes games work well. And so we started a two-man shop called Electronic Entertainment Design and Research, otherwise known as EDAR, because it was way too long to say the thing. And over a period of years, we went from a two-man shop to like a 70-man shop and became the video game quants, meaning not kind of survey data, but objective data, objectively quantifiable data that you could do analysis on. And I wrote us a classification system where we could track thousands of nodes of what do these games have in them, kind of the DNA. And we ended up hiring a small army of in-house researchers, trained them on our classification system, and then collected data about every single commercially released game. And since it was hand collected on a specific classification I met, it meant we could do hardcore regression analysis and mathematics on it because it wasn't a, what do people think this game is? It was, this is what a group of trained researchers have classified it on. So all the data was structurally robust. In 2015 or 16, we were actually acquired by NPD, which is one of the biggest market research firms for just in general, not just for games. But yeah, so decade number two was researching games and figuring out what makes them work and then advising Sony and Nintendo and Microsoft and EA and Activision and all these companies on ways to help have a better chance of success on your games. And we did a lot of pioneering research on downloadable content and microtransactions and even just spreading out your game release catalog. Do you remember how in like, the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, everybody released for Christmas. It was like everybody had holiday releases. Even worse that it happens today. <laughs> oh yeah, but it's much more spread out now. It used to be there was only a couple of month period and we basically came in with research that showed that they were all eating each other's lunch. Mm -hmm. That you know, If your average consumer spends a hundred bucks a year on games, it's not like they save that up and only spend it once. They want to spend it across the year. So we started getting companies to like move their release dates out and all sorts of other fun things. I learned a friggin' ton doing that. We got bought and I started up a new studio, then Experiment 7, making VR games. We got venture funded, put out a couple of VR games, got the licenses for D&D, did a D&D kind of battle chess game, got the license for Settlers of Catan, did Settlers of Catan in VR. But that whole studio, Experiment 7, our whole thing was, we're going to go make amazing VR rooms that you can hang out with your friends from anywhere in the world and play board games together. How early in VR technology was this? We were a launch title for the Gear and the Go. Aha, uh -huh. yeah. We were in the GDC booth that Oculus put together. We were one of the three games chosen to be the launch things for the Go. We'd come out on the Rift. Yeah, it was a ton of fun. Got to meet Klaus Tuber's sons, Benny and Guido. Tuber was the guy who made Catan, and both of his sons still work at the Catan studio. And got to, they got them to take an early VR headset back to show their dad. And we actually used that as our part of our release, our announcement trailer was Benny or Guido. I think it was Benny taking um, a headset back, showing his dad, talking about like, the you know, safeguarding the future or the legacy of Catan. And it ends with Klaus like sliding a VR headset on his head and looking around going, oh, it's Catan. It's a really heartwarming release trailer. Yeah, so I spent a couple years. I mean, I've just worked on all sorts of video game things, but it's, you know, MMOs were new for their time. Data market research for games was very new for its time. Nobody was really doing it. Hopping into VR. I mean, we hopped in too early. It's just, <laughs> yeah. That's one of the things about being uncomfortable with taking risks, or sorry, being comfortable with taking risks is we went in knowing there was a high certainty that we were just too early. 
but that if we were ever going to go in and say, if it takes off, we've got this segment carved out, we're going to know how to do it. We've got venture funding. So if it takes off, we'll be able to pull in money to do a whole bunch more of these. We've got name brand titles people will come in and do, and we'll figure out the tech to make these amazing games. We're the number one seller, I think, six or seven different platforms for that, but it's just too early. It's the install base problem, which is the easiest way to explain it is, say you're making Angry Birds. If there's 100 iPhones out there, you could sell 100 copies maximum. If there's a million iPhones, you could sell a million copies. VR kind of has the 100 iPhone problem where no matter how good your game is, there's such a small market buying it that it's not just not terribly sustainable. Whew. Even you will say that even today with the success of stuff like the Quest 2? If we were starting today, I think it'd be a lot more sustainable. Like the Quest 2 mm -hmm. is the first one actually selling serious numbers. Mm -hmm. But when you're going in venture-backed, what a venture capital group wants to do is invest a certain amount of money on the chance that something's going to get big. And by big, they're wanting like a 10x return on the amount of money they invest. But they do this knowing that there's going to be a high degree of this won't work. They're in the business of taking risky gambling bets. And so, you know, saying that we're going to make a sustainable VR studio that can pull off this quality of games is we're basically coming in saying we should be making not higher mid-budget games, but for VR, at least mid-budget games. And so we put out, as I said, number one sellers on it, but the market was just not sustainable at the time. And if you're dealing with venture capital, that pretty much means that if you don't hit at the right time, it isn't a thing you want to kind of keep going for over very long periods of time. They're on the bet big or go home kind of thing. Right. So like if you were starting now venture backed, maybe. Maybe. But yeah. even then, you know, you're talking about, you know, something that's maybe 1% the size of a console install base mm -hmm. for like a PlayStation, maybe 2 or 3%. But that means that no matter how good you are, there's still a limited amount you can sell. Yep, exactly. And that's the hard part from development or from funding. You know, if you go to a publisher and you're like, hey, we're going to do a low budget game. You know, we can pull off a really great game for a million dollars. And that's a low budget game, just realistically in today's ecosystem. That means that the publisher needs to be guaranteed of getting their million back. And then, you know, they want to make money on top of that. You know, they'd like to at least double their money because that lets them fund their next games. And then the dev studio wants to make money on top of that because they'd like to, you know, give bonuses to their employees and other things. So if you're going in making even a modest game, that means you need to be selling at least a couple million dollars worth of copies of the game for something that's coming in at low budget. A lot of it is the economics. Anytime you do early hardware, you need a group supporting you. Like Oculus, for a lot of groups, you know, gave them little bits of monetary support along the way because they knew the games would never even break even without somebody helping prop them up on money. And this is very common when you're making new tech. And that's one of the things that you end up needing like a good business development person for is to try and find those kinds of things. But I mean, we could spend hours just talking about, you know, VR ecosystems if you wanted. But I like hopping into new things. And that's kind of also how I ended up running a YouTube studio. I do have some questions about that because I, I have heard 
That or games, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll talk about <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as much as I wish I could spend hours talking about the VR stuff, and I do hope we meet at some events so we can continue talking about that. Yeah. Regarding the YouTube side, I have met maybe a couple of people who have gone from doing YouTube to doing games. Mm-hmm. However, you went from doing games to doing YouTube-related yeah. stuff, and, I, and I'm curious about what, how that happened. So for a lot of it, it was actually in parallel. Like I'm still running Experiment 7. We're still actually porting some of our VR stuff. It's just we're not really making new things. We're supporting existing games. Mm-hmm. Extra Credits is a YouTube channel that's been around for about 11 years at this point. And oh God, just yeah. through going to a lot of video game trade shows and things like PAX, I ended up meeting independently both of the two founders of it, uh, James and Dan. And ended up becoming friends with both of them. And we'd meet at trade shows, hang out. They're both great people. For years, there was kind of this joke that it was extra credits and friends because they'd put together panels at trade shows and conventions and other things. And they'd just invite a whole bunch of friends to be up on stage and we'd have wide-ranging discussions. So I became one of the game designers that they were always just pulling up on stage to talk game design. Because the initial videos the channel did were about game design before they expanded into game design and history. And so I'd been hanging out with them for a while and I was chatting with both of them and I said, Hey, at a certain point, I'm just going to come on and I'm going to work with you guys. And we're going to help turn extra credits from a kind of YouTube channel into a whole business on YouTube, something that's really fully self-sustaining. And they actually, don't get me wrong. They were already self-sustaining, but they were both doing this. Like Dan was a full-time video game artist or Pixar, then video game artist. And James was a full-time game consultant. And so I think in early 2018, as I was doing some stuff, still doing some stuff for Experiment 7, I came on part-time, started helping them out. And then kind of within the next year, both Dan and James, who had been doing this a while, ended up retiring. And suddenly it was retiring on the, hey, would you like to be running a YouTube channel? And (laughs) because they both, I mean, they were getting burned out. I mean, there were a whole bunch of reasons. But and I was like, yeah, but we're going to have to find a really good showrunner to you know, help replace part of this because I'm not the person to be doing voiceover or individual like scripts. I'm good at running a studio. I'm good at running a group of creatives. And so we found Matthew Kroll, who I actually, I think I met him at a trade show when I was at James. I think James and I were hanging out in the lobby and I was showing him some of the VR stuff we were working on that was not released yet. And James had known Matt and Matt like wandered by, I think he wasn't drunk at all at the time in a lobby. And we all ended up sitting at a table looking at this top secret VR stuff I was working on. Yeah. So I ended up kind of going to both running a game studio and a YouTube channel at the same time and helping figure out how do we grow? How do we make sure we can pay everybody? How do we stay relevant? Before you head into that part, I just want to make a note that I'm trying to contain not to giggle because last week I interviewed Matt for this very podcast okay. and he told me the other side of the exact story you just told me. <laughs> but from his point of view, I barely remember it because he was drunk. This is amazing. Sorry, please continue. One of the fun things about being in the industry for a while is you bump into cool people and you know, hopefully you get to kind of stay in touch with a lot of them and at some point, there's a lot of people I'm like, man, I would love to do a project with you sometime. That it's just, you know, it's figuring out nobody ever has enough time to do all the projects they want or enough money to make all the games they want. Or, you know, there's just always more to do 
then you have time to do it. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about extra credits is we operate differently from a lot of YouTube channels that a lot of YouTube channels are a person or maybe two or three people and they don't have a steady release cadence, meaning they work on a video and they put it out when they're ready. And part of the legacy of extra credits was extra credits puts out videos every single week. And this wasn't something we necessarily wanted to change. So I was figuring out how to sustainably put out two videos, hand animated original videos every single week. And what that means is we typically have about 15 videos in production at a time. We run three shows right now, Extra Credits, Extra History, and Extra Mythology. And so we need writers for each. We need artists. We need editors. Matt does the voiceover for all of it. If we have sponsors, we have to get sponsor integrations into them. And so we really are a small production house that distributes via YouTube. And now that we've joined part of the Nebula family, we also distribute via Nebula. I guess part of it is I think about it a little differently, that I think of YouTube as a distribution place, a place that we put our videos, but that we are a production house that distributes via that. Because there's no reason if there wasn't other really good places that we couldn't do that as well. We make good content. We make educational content that's entertainment first, meaning it has to be fun to watch. Otherwise, nobody's going to watch it. And then we're subversive and we sneak our education in, you know, teaching you history or game design or mythology. But, you know, to kind of go around all that, it just it's herding cats. It's a whole bunch of creative people. You got to get things out every single week. And in a lot of cases, that's very similar to running a game studio is that we have deadlines. We have things that got to get done. We have a lot of creative people. And it's kind of like channeling and getting them to keep moving all forward towards what you're trying to do. So how has the process changed since you came in? Like, as you quite noted, you over at extra credits, things that run at a level in terms of operation that is significantly higher. So what have you learned through the process and how have you refined that to achieve the output that you have today? A lot of it has actually been about process because extra credits has always put things out at a really good cadence. But I think like one of the reasons Dan and James retired is there's a lot of burnout on it if you can't figure out a way to do it sustainably. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of it was process, figuring out when do we, you know, that was some stuff that Matt and I worked on a lot. And don't get me wrong, James and Dan were amazing. Like the fact that they did this while having other jobs blows my mind. I don't know how they slept, just straight up. But that was also something that we didn't necessarily want to replicate, that we wanted people to have evenings, you know, have family lives and to be able to you know, not burnout. And again, they weren't running it in a burnout way. It's just, they were doing a lot. And so it was about, you know, continuing to find extra people. Do we have the money to hire them? Figuring out process, figuring out how to make things better and more efficient. We actually, at a certain point, ended up, I found a small edit house in the Midwest that now does all of our editing because it's an actual small edit house. There's three people who work there. And so this means, for example, if our editor gets sick, we no longer have to stop all of these videos in production while he gets better or she gets better. We have a group that can cover. And so it's kind of finding redundancy in some cases, better scheduling and just working on the actual process of how we get these done. It may sound odd that I very rarely contribute substantively to our videos, except for the occasional ones that I write. 
And that's very low frequency, but they very much contribute to our process and keeping it going and kind of the behind the scenes business and just making sure that we're still making the right things and helping, you know, pitch new shows and train up staff and just everything around how do we do this. I'm kind of the person in the background where Matt is the showrunner, is the one who then directly touches the schedule and does the voiceover and does, you know, the script blesses where he's the final one says, yes, this is a good script to go out. One of my tricks to actually having started a couple of studios at this point, like both the research studio and the video game studio, and then coming in and kind of ended up being not a founder, but the person now co-running it with Matt, is that I've almost always found having a partner to do something is critically important. That it's really hard to make a big thing solo because most people don't have the skill set to do everything. And so like when I founded EDAR, our research firm, Greg Short, who I founded it with, is a fantastic salesman. He's a great entrepreneur. You know, he's a good brainstormer. But what he wasn't necessarily the person was to go then build a classification system, the databases and the hierarchy and figure out process around that. But I'm very good at that. And so we made a great team. He could say, I think people would buy this. I could say, we could, I think we can make this. And then he could go out and sell it. And hey, we, made, we formed a whole research studio just around doing that. Or when we did the Game Studio Experiment 7, my buddy Dimitri Datsaridis, who I formed it with, was a really good producer and kind of studio head. And so, and he was very good at fundraising and, you know, just doing that part of it. And so while I was kind of the creative director, again, kind of in charge of what we made, he was very good at running the studio, making sure we had the funding and the deals and helped get the licensing. And so, you know, like watching Greg and Dimitri is then what taught me how to do that, where I'm kind of at extra credits doing the opposite side. Instead of kind of running the creative side, it's more running the okay, everybody else gets to do the creative stuff. I'm going to make sure everything else works. But these are fun things as you get older. You get to keep trying different things and reinvent what you do. It probably helps not being burned out. Yeah, that is. I mean, that's a funny thing. Like, I think people look at like, oh, you make video games, you make YouTube videos. That must be really cool. And it is. It is really cool. But anything you do long enough is work. And some work is better than other works. And some work is better suited to your temperament than other works. Like part of what I drew would drive some people crazy. They wouldn't last a week. They'd be like, this just isn't the thing I want to be doing. And for other people, they might say, this is exactly the thing I want to be doing. So, you know, it's kind of like reinventing yourself and not burning out by switching things and being able to kind of constantly change and adapt and hopefully enjoy some of the chaos around that process. Fascinating. Looking to whatever we're all going to produce yeah. in the upcoming years, anything in particular that catches your eye that you're particularly excited about? I mean, at some point I may just go start another game studio. <laughs> Because why not? There's at least another game or two I want to make, but I'm also looking right now, like there's some really cool creator tools in Fortnite, in Roblox, in new game called Core. And part of me is like, do I want to not have to go through all the rest of this? Do I want to go take somebody's tool set and see if I could go make a killer game within their thing? Do I want to go form a new studio? You know, there's some really cool stuff Mad and I have planned out because we definitely do this as a partnership that I'd love to see. There's two or three games I'd love to make if, you know, I had the budget and the team for them. But getting that involves putting that all together. So I don't know. 
You know, it's funny, a couple of years ago, right before I took the extra credits job, I ended up going up to Wizards of the Coast and checking out to see if I wanted to come on as one of the heads of the Magic the Gathering card game. Like I went to the kind of the final interview process and at a certain point realized that just wasn't quite what I wanted to be doing. And in the same way, they said, you're not quite the right person to be doing it because at this point, they're a big team and I'm a little more entrepreneurial. But it's looking every once in a while, like, would I want to go work on a prestige thing like that? Getting to say I'm in charge of Magic the Gathering with a couple of other their people, that'd be kind of fun. If that had been D&D, I might have just completely gone for it. But one of the things, too, is realizing, again, as you get a little older, what's the thing you really want to be working on and seeing if you could get yourself to that? Well, being one of the heads of Magic the Gathering at least sounds like a hell of a thing to put on a Twitter bio, at the very least. My wife was like, there's very few things that we would move back up to Seattle for, but that would make you so happy. <laughs> but again, that's also why you do the interview process is because there's the title of it. And then there's the, is this a thing that I actually want to be doing 24-7? Yeah. Want to be a rock star, but don't want to write any music. Yeah. Or don't want to go on tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot to being a rock star. Yeah. I mean, do you look good in leather pants? That's an important consideration. Yep. And that's why I never went into music. Just <laughs> exactly that reason. Given that you still have ideas for things that you want to do, is there any particular, at least video game related platform right now that it, it doesn't have to be like a major or economically sustainable one, just something that you find personally interesting to maybe create something for? All of them are interesting. Part of it's also how I play games. I always revert to my, the highest fidelity experience nearby. So if I'm sitting at a Starbucks, I'll play on my iPhone. If I'm actually sitting at a Starbucks, I'll bust out my iPad. If I'm at home, I'm on my PC or my console. And so like, I like mobile games, but they're not really my passion. So the kinds of things I'd want to design would probably end up being like PC or console. And those are usually bigger productions. But yeah, there's a couple of those. But as I said, it would also be fun to see could I go grab one of these great sets of creator tools and maybe make something solo or even just bring in another person or two? You know, could I go do a thing as a super small team and put out something big? That sounds like an interesting challenge. So again, it's just trying to figure out where do you want to spend your time? The idea of trying to create something complex mm -hmm. out of just user-facing tools isn't self-interested. I have been seeing on Twitter that the things people are building with the new Nintendo game, what's the name of it? Like Game Builder or something? Yeah, yeah. That looks interesting. Like people are coming up with some crazy stuff. Yeah, and that's, it's funny because like my very starting thing, remember I said, you know, I was programming MUDs and I was modding levels for Marathon. You know, modding is basically using somebody else's tools to go make a thing. And so like some of my very early work was doing that and I made some good stuff. And a part of me is like, could I go do that again? And it's just, again, it's always things. And, you know, I have a, I have a kid who just turned one. So it's also the startups are usually like you end up doing a lot of work for a startup, 60, 70 hour weeks, because you're the one, you're the driving personality, bringing a thing, screaming and kicking into existence. Do I want to do that when I have a really young kid? Do I want to wait a couple of years? Because I'd like to be around and see my kid. So again, it's just, you know, you're always making these choices of what do you want to be doing? What's important to you right now? Exactly. Well, 
Fair enough. I, I look forward to <laughs> whatever comes of your future endeavors. Me too. I've got to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next important step. Yeah. Thank you for putting some of your time to share your amazing story with me. Thanks for having me. I love getting to just chat with people and I'll talk forever, as you can probably hear.